Our reading comes from Galatians 3, verse 15 to 29. <coughs> to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be done be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, is according to promise. Turn with me in the Westminster Confession of Faith to chapter 7, paragraph 5. This can be found on page 110, and it's the right-hand column that we will be reading. We're talking about uh, the covenant of grace that God has established with the mediator, Jesus Christ, and which he has revealed in his word. And we're taking up paragraph 5. In the time of the law, this covenant, this covenant being the covenant of grace, this covenant was administered differently than in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances given to the Jewish people, all of which foreshadowed Christ to come. These were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious 
through the work of the Spirit, to instruct and build up the elect in their faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they received complete forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. This covenant administration is called the Old Testament. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word as we consider uh, our confession and its summary of God's word for us this afternoon. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, help us to appreciate the relationship of grace that you have revealed in your word from Genesis to Revelation, and that we can be counted a part of that, to sing with the saints of old of the wonder of your love and the wonder that we can love you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we consider these glorious truths to appreciate again what you have revealed in your word and how how it is the same and yet different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We ask that you would help us to understand this by your Spirit's presence and your Spirit's power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we're skipping paragraph four this afternoon. Um, I'd like to deal with that. It's dealing with the bequeathing of an inheritance and what the will and the testament is. And I'd like to look at that next week. I think it will tie in very well with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the significance of that. And I'd like to look at that from 1 Corinthians 15 because 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear what the authors of the Westminster Confession are getting at. But it'll also be helpful, I think, to consider uh, paragraph five this afternoon. And so we're going to look at that this afternoon and begin thinking about this together. And as we do so, as we think about the covenant of grace, I'd like us to begin by imagining an apple tree. An apple tree. How does it start? It starts with a seed. It grows into a sapling. And after a few years, it becomes a, a tree and and there will be blossoms on it, and eventually it will bear fruit. Now, if you haven't grown up around an orchard, you may not know what an apple tree is or how to identify an apple tree until you see it finally bearing fruit, and then you'll say, ah, I get it, that's an apple tree. If you've grown up in the city, not many of us have, but if you have, you might think that apples come from the shop. They don't. They do grow on trees and they do come from orchards. But now as we think about this apple that grows on a tree and, and the development of the tree, I'd like us to think particularly about the stages of producing an apple. The stages of producing an apple. You start with the seed, then you have the stage of the sapling where it's the shoot that has come out of the ground, the seed has, has produced this sapling, and then, then the tree, and that tree grows for a number of years, and after three or four years it begins to flower and the fruit appears, and so that's another stage. Finally, the fruit comes, and some won't recognize. If they haven't been trained, they won't recognize the difference in the tree from another fruit tree until this very last stage, until the fruit has come. But those who know, they recognize. And the orchardist who has planted the seed has in every stage, whether it's from the seed to the sapling to the tree to the flower to finally the fruit, he has this glorious expectation at every stage of that apple that's finally going to fruit on the tree. 
It's only the final stage where we will eat that apple and appreciate what it is that they've been anticipating all those years. That crunchy, crisp texture. The juicy, sweet flavor as you bite into that nicely ripened apple. But the grower, he's known, he's anticipated, and he's looked forward at every stage to that fruit that is coming. And that's an illustration that helps us think about the covenant of grace as it's revealed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see, in the New Testament age in which we are living, in the last days, which the Scripture speaks of as the last days of redemptive history, in the last days, we are enjoying the fruit. We taste the wonder of the work of Jesus Christ. We have uh, come to that, that place. We've arrived at the final stage when the fruit appears, and we can enjoy it because now all of God's Word is complete, and the full wonder of the redemption of sinners is found in the teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in the Old Testament time, all along, there have been things developing and there have been necessary stages of growth, just like that apple tree. The stages of the seed being planted, of the sapling growing, of the tree developing, of the flowers coming on the tree, and so on and so forth. There's been growth and development in every one of those stages. And in the Old Testament particularly, and that's what we're considering this afternoon, the Old Testament, the revelation of the covenant of grace, all along God's people have been looking forward and anticipating with eager expectation the arrival of the fruit, that it would be the fullness of the redemption that would be found in Jesus Christ. And as we consider that this afternoon, I'd like us to consider three things. How the covenant of grace is found in the Old Testament. First of all, why is this important? Secondly, how was grace administered then in the Old Testament? And thirdly, how was the Old Testament believer grace dependent, just like we are? First of all, why is this important? I've said it before, and I think it bears repeating. That sometimes the most confusing page in our Bibles is this one right here, with those three words, the New Testament. What goes on between the most of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, and the New Testament? Three words that can lead to a, a lot of confusion. That's why what we confess is important. In the time of the law, this covenant, that is the covenant of grace, was administered differently than in the time of the gospel. That's what our confession is reminding us. But that covenant is the same. It's the same covenant of grace. This is why our confession is so important. Because most Christians you come in contact with today, most Christians think differently about the relationship. They think differently about this one page in the Bible. Boys and girls, some of your classmates will think differently about the Old Testament and its relevance today. 
Now this didn't just start, it, it's been there through the ages. There was a man way back in the 1800s who, who wrote a study Bible, and this was very prominent. It's called the Schofield Study Bible. And he said, in the Old Testament, God wanted his people to, to be saved by obeying the law. And so he gave them the law. And, and it's kind of this, this republication or this, this uh, uh, going back to the Garden of Eden and trying to get man to live by the covenant of works, that they had to agree to the law, which they did in Exodus. And when they agreed to the law, they could be saved if they could obey the law. The Old Testament then is about the law. The New Testament is entirely different because it's all about grace. The Old Testament was about obedience. The New Testament is about faith. And so we're saved in these two completely different ways. You can have it either by obedience or you can have it by faith in grace. And, and so there's this, this tension that is found between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John MacArthur shares this view. So if you use his study Bible, or sometimes I know in our Bible studies we use his study notes, he's sound on the doctrine of salvation, on the, the five points of Calvinism, working out the sovereignty of God and, and that sovereignty in our salvation. But it, when it comes to the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, he has a different view than what we confess in the Westminster Confession. There will be a difference. And that difference is to suggest that God has a different way of dealing with his people in the Old Testament and in the New. Now, thankfully, we must recognize, and I think we're, we can be grateful for this, that, that some who, who do follow John MacArthur are struggling and wrestling with us, and they're changing. And they're willing to concede at least a little bit from, from particularly our text this afternoon that that God, so, so maybe not the whole Old Testament is about obedience. They, they contract it down and they say, well, you see, with, with Abraham, there was this relationship of grace. And Israel could have gone with that if that Mount Sinai, they had rejected God's law and said, no, we're going to live by grace. And so some are willing to concede that Abraham's, God's relationship with Abraham was a gracious relationship, which is good. But I don't think that's Paul's point in Galatians 3. Because what Paul says in verse 17, that just because God established the law 430 years after, that that establishment of a covenant of law where God gave his law doesn't make the promise void. It doesn't change the conditions. And here's what we need to recognize. That just because Moses is giving the law doesn't mean that God is working out a new relationship. In terms of our illustration of an apple tree, the way it goes would be something like this. With Abraham, God was growing an apple tree. He planted the seed of an apple. He had seen the sapling coming up. It had developed and it was growing. But then it came time to Exodus and and rather than, than, than having that, that apple tree come to fruition, God offered a different tree. Let's call it a lemon tree because it's going to have a, a bit of a bitter taste to it. And that is to, to live by the law. And so people approach this and they, they begin to consider what is going on in the Old Testament? The Old Testament, that's all about law. and the New Testament, we're all about grace. 
The best way to think about this, though, and that's where we're really helped by our confession, as it, it takes the broad view and brings us back to Scripture, is to recognize this covenant, while it is administered differently in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel, it is the same covenant of grace with the same effects. And the best way to think about it is to think about the stages of development. That it's the same tree. And where, where they would say, oh no, with Moses, God started another tree. We would say, oh no, with Moses, God continued the growth and the development of the tree. And now what he has done is he's, he's putting, put stakes up next to that sapling so that as it grows and develops, it grows according to the structure that is needed. It was the same covenant of grace administered according to the stage of growth. When you have a sapling, you want stakes and wires to hold it secure. So the roots can grow and develop. And that's how the law functioned in the Old Testament. That's why Paul can speak of the law in this way, as a guardian until Christ came. It was a protector. It was designed by God to carefully protect. And the law that Paul is talking about is not the moral law specifically, but the ceremonial law. And that's why this is important for us to understand so that when we are asked, why is it? And I've been asked within the last month, why is it you, you worship in this way? Why is it you, you emphasize the Sabbath? Why is it you're so stringent about the law? Why is it that you read the law in your worship service? Are you just legalistic in your Old Testament approach to things? Are you overemphasizing the Old Testament? And it's no, that's not the case. Because this is the way that God showed his grace to his people. And that's what we recognize. And that's secondly, how was grace administered then in that Old Testament era? There was grace that was found in the law. We sung of that this morning in Psalm 119. The law is a gift of grace. God deals graciously with the law with us. And there are a number of ways in which the grace of Christ and the grace of his work was shown, was revealed to the people. Westminster Confession identifies a number of these. Under the law, grace was administered. It was ministered by God to his people by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, Passover, and other types and ordinances. Notice what it's saying. It was administered as a means of revelation, all foreshadowing the work of Christ to come all teaching them to look forward to that fruit that would grow on the apple tree, a means of revelation. They weren't saved by the sacrifices. They weren't saved by the ceremonies. Their salvation was just as secure as ours because it would come through faith in the promised Messiah. And that's the wonder that God was revealing to them. The wonder that they needed a mediator. mediator. Those may never be separated. These, these works, the, the, the circumcision, the Passover lamb, the types and, and the ordinances, the sacrifices, the prophecies, the promises, may never be separated from the promise of the coming of Christ. They were all infantile ways of making known to them. You know what it's like when, when you're teaching a child to, to write? 
And when I was growing up and I learned to write, I remember the pages we had distributed to us. I'm not quite sure how it happens anymore, but we, we had the three lines across the page. And, and the middle line was a dotted line. So you knew that, that your, your, your D, for instance, when you made the little D, it had to stay below the line, and then the arm went above the middle line, and so on and so forth. And as you developed, you, you traced it out, first of all, and, and then you would, you would learn to write it on your own. And, and eventually, the lines would be taken away. And once the lines would be taken away, then, then you would write, learn to write, write in the right space. And then, then after that, you could write on a blank piece of paper, and you'd try to write in a straight line. And it was really hard to do. But if you'd learn, you, you, you would use those infantile steps to, to, to develop and to grow and, and to, to mature in your writing. Well, that is what was happening in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God gave some elementary ways to guard and guide God's people so that they might understand fully the wonder of what God was going to show them in the coming of Jesus Christ. But here, astoundingly, beautifully, wonderfully, the Westminster Confession has this to say. These were, for that time, and in that stage, they were sufficient. There was enough of them. They didn't need something else, and they were efficacious. They worked. It worked. It was the way they worked. Through the work of the Holy Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in their faith in the promised Messiah. By whom? They received complete forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. That those who lived in the Old Testament had complete forgiveness of their sins. They didn't have to wait for Christ to die, though Christ hadn't come yet. They could believe in what God was revealing. They could believe the gospel just like we believe in reflection. They could believe in anticipation. Remember what God says about Abraham? Paul has just touched on this earlier. That, that Abraham was justified, he was right with God by faith, by believing in the Christ that was coming. For that time, they were sufficient and efficacious. They needed to do that because that was how God was revealing the coming of Christ. But now thirdly, thirdly, how was it grace-dependent? How was it grace-dependent? Was it just by ticking the boxes? Was it just by getting the right sacrifice? Getting that accomplished? Notice the careful care that, that the, the authors have. It's one of the most succinct statements which reflects the wonder. For that time, they were sufficient and efficacious. And notice they put in this very important uh, phrase, through the work of the Spirit. It wasn't through the sacrifices. It wasn't through the ceremonies. It wasn't by their obedience. It was by the work of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit worked with these instruments, even though they were quite immature, even though they were very infantile, the Spirit worked with these instruments. And he was able to use these, these minor instruments to accomplish the major salvation of God's elect and to bring them to faith in the coming Messiah. In the Old Testament, they were just as dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit as we are in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit was active in regeneration. The Holy Spirit was active in conversion. The Holy Spirit was active as he took the word of God and applied it to his people. 
Salvation in every age and at every stage is completely dependent on the triune God. That is the witness of each testament. That the Old Testament looked forward to was the fulfillment. Just like the orchardist who knows the splendor of the crop that he is nurturing. And so to us who enjoy the fulfillment and the fruit that has grown on God's work of redemption. We must appreciate and celebrate the way that God has grown His work. Not our work. Not Israel's work. His work. From the seed to the sapling to the tree so that now we can celebrate the giving of the fruit. This is why the book of Hebrews would say, don't go back. Don't go back. You can't keep using those infantile ways. Another illustration could be, could be the cot that our, that our children sleep in at night. Why do we put them in the cot? We put them in the cot because, because they, they, they might roll out of bed and hurt themselves. We put them in the cot so we know that they're secure at night. So in the middle of the night, they don't wake up and go wandering around. We put them in the cot for their own safety and for their own security. That's what God did with his people. Now, wouldn't it be strange? Wouldn't it be unusual if after living in a, in a full-size bed, I remember the day that my children went up to that full-size bed and they thought, ooh, they're growing up now. Wouldn't it be strange that all of a sudden when they hit their 20s, they say, I want to go back to sleeping in the cot. No, it can't be. That's not how God wants you to live. Now in the new covenant in the New Testament with the gospel with the full fruit we can celebrate the maturity of God's work that he has accomplished his purpose and that we live in the covenant of grace fully revealed fully made known so that works and faith come together under the grace of Jesus Christ just like they did in the Old Testament so do they in the New Testament. That's the wonder of the Old Testament and the covenant of grace. Helping us to see why is it we're different? Because we recognize the character of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. It's one work of God from Genesis to Revelation through grace, by faith, for all who believe. And the Spirit works with that to secure us in the work of Jesus Christ. That is something to enjoy, the fruit of God's labor. Amen.